Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. For today's episode, we're trying something different. This is the last recording of the first season of Free Range, and it's also the end of 2022. So I thought I'd try an experiment with a solo podcast. So no guest, just me talking for an hour or so. I'm not sure how much of an audience there's going to be for this, but I thought I would give it a go. So the theory of the podcast is really just to provide me, in some sense, with an opportunity to speak with um, guests with lots of different backgrounds and perspectives about issues related to the environment and sustainability. it's uh, it's fun for me. I hope that there's others in the world who enjoy it as well. Um, but it is interesting to consider why this is valuable. You know why this is a valuable thing to do uh, if it is a valuable thing to do. Um, you know this this idea of kind of engaging across disciplinary boundaries. Um, you know, I could have a different podcast that uh, in which I talk to other legal scholars or, um, you know, kind of or even more specifically just to other environmental law scholars. There's plenty of environmental law scholars out there. We have plenty to talk about. Um, you know, I can kind of stick within that disciplinary, um, you know, the, those disciplinary boundaries and and have certainly many productive conversations. So why why this? Why this alternative approach of, you know, talking with economists and philosophers and religious studies professors and natural scientists and folks from all these different fields. Now, it's common to bemoan the intellectual silos that we, um, that we find ourselves with in the, in the academy, in the university, right? The, um, you know, we, we do have disciplines and we have departments um, and, you know, folks will say, well, you know, because it's bad to be siloed into these departments. It's bad to be cut off, to have disciplinary boundaries. Um, you know, that sounds like a bad thing. It sounds like you don't be cut off from anybody and, you know, being in a silo doesn't sound particularly uh, beneficial or a, you know, a, a great way of, of uh, opening your mind and spreading your horizons. So, um, you know, there, there's that kind of intuitive way of, thinking about the interdisciplinary thing and and why you might want to engage. Um, But we also need to kind of recognize that there are trade-offs involved. Um, You know, when you engage with folks across disciplinary boundaries, across disciplines, there's the potential for confusion. People don't necessarily have easy ways of talking to each other. Um, one of the benefits of, of disciplines and you know operating within your discipline is that you develop a shared lingo, shared understandings. Um, it's easier to have conversations. There's a background of, of assumed knowledge that you can work with, right? So you don't kind of starting from scratch in every conversation. Um, and also, even more, even at a higher level of abstraction, there's just a trade-off between being a generalist versus being a specialist. Um, there's only so many hours in the day. There, you know, my brain at least is. Uh, I'm, I'm 
keenly aware of the finite nature of the amount of information that I can hold in my head, uh, how much time it takes me to acquire information and to learn new things, and um, and we just have to we have to make that trade off. And you know, we you can't be a, you know a total generalist and be a specialist on absolutely everything. It's just literally impossible. You cannot have knowledge that is maximally broad and maximally deep. You just um, given the finite nature of our cognitive resources, there you have to make a trade-off between these things. You know, so nevertheless, I've kind of uh, come to think of myself over time as a scholar who does really um, engage in, in interdisciplinary projects of different kinds. Um, so I think it is worth um, you know dealing with some of these uh, trade-offs and. You know, as between being a generalist and being a specialist, I tilt more towards having more of a general approach. Um, although I do recognize that comes with trade-offs in terms of my uh, specialist knowledge that I might otherwise have uh, have acquired. You know, it's a little easier for me, given my particular place um, in the in the university at a law school. Um, as a as a legal academic, there's it's kind of actually a natural fit to engage in some amount of interdisciplinary thinking or to take an interdisciplinary approach to to questions. You know, if you there's different ways of thinking about law schools. Certainly, law schools are professional schools. We prepare lawyers for legal practice and for going out in the world and doing their jobs. But in terms of how law schools are organized as an intellectual enterprise and you know for the production of knowledge what we share in a law faculty these days in the 21st century isn't so much a way of approaching questions or a discipline it is more an object of study where what we're all interested in or at least what we are professionally interested in um, in our scholarship is the law but um, at a law school, um, again, at, a, at least at a U.S. law school at the beginning of the 20th, 21st century, although we share that common object of study, that common interest, we take very different um, methodological disciplinary perspectives on that object of study. So there are folks here at the University of Virginia uh, Law School who are economists. So they come at the question of law and legal institutions using the tools and asking the questions that are common in the economics discipline. Uh, so doing doing data analysis, uh, identifying what the causal factors are that affect judicial decision-making or identifying how changes in legal regimes affect real-world outcomes, right? So that's, um, those are economists. We have philosophers on the faculty here who think about the law normatively and concern, you know, consider questions like, um, you know, what are the uh, underlying normative principles that motivate anti-discrimination law? Or uh, how do we think about, you know, retribution in the criminal justice system? Uh, we have, you know, political scientists who, you know, are interested in applying social science techniques to political institutions, voting, you know, thinking about the role of ideology and legal decision-making and the like. So, and then even more broadly, you can have anthropologists, sociologists, historians, you know, many different disciplines are engaged in the, you know, project of understanding the law. Historians, of course, is a huge one. I should just mention we have a number of historians at UVA Law as well. 
And, you know, they're, they're look, taking a different perspective on the law, looking at the development of law over time, obviously, kind of history is embedded in this question of time, but having different methods, right? Not um, as focused, for example, on collecting data as the economists might be, or different kinds of data, not quantitative data, but um, going to historical archives, for example, um, or reading the communications between um, judges and their friends or between different legal actors, engaging with different kinds of uh, materials, uh, to understand the world in different interpretive methods, right? So the uh, economists are very interested in um, causal identification and isolating uh, causal mechanisms and building and identifying data structures that allow them to do that. Um, historians aren't going to be as focused on that. That's just not how the field of history operates is it would be very constraining for historians to be as obsessed with causal inferences um, economists are these days. And so, you know, what historians are engaged in a different interpretive task, um, staying close to their materials, but, uh, but with a kind of different explanatory motivation. Um, so in any case, being at a law school is, you know, is, is very, uh, it's very natural for me to have a kind of interdisciplinary orientation. And I've taken that into my own work. I've, you know, engaged with folks in the social sciences, um, with people in philosophy, with people in um, computer science and natural language processing and lots of different projects. And so I've, I've found it to be really fruitful, but it is, again, um, not necessarily for everybody. And it's worth considering, you know, both why... Why is it worthwhile to engage in um, interdisciplinary scholarship um, or to just engage in an interdisciplinary way? And then how to do that? Uh, you know, are there you know, ways that we can do that that are more fruitful uh, than others? And so uh, that's what I thought I would talk a little bit about in this, in this solo episode, our questions around um, interdisciplinary scholarship, interdisciplinary engagement. Um, why do we do it? Why is it useful? You know, uh, how can we do it in a way that's productive? Um, just as a little note, I'm going to use the word interdisciplinary, but uh, within the field, there's there's some different lingo that people that people favor and 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 like for different reasons. So there are terms like transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, and I'm just going to use the term interdisciplinary as a catch-all for all of these. Um, notwithstanding uh, that, might grade on some people, but. Uh, uh, just for the sake of simplicity, use the, the term interdisciplinary to be kind of a higher level uh, category that these other um, other terms fall into, and really just meaning all of the various ways that people might work with each other or engage across traditional disciplinary boundaries. Okay, so maybe to start with, it's worth providing a little bit of a defense of disciplines, um, academic disciplines, not a defensive you know, discipline, self-discipline, and uh, that might, self-discipline might be great, but that's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about academic discipline. So why, um, why do we have them? And, and for, for purposes today, what I'm kind of, kind of talk a little bit about is not the historical explanation for why we have the disciplines we do, or, um, you know, how, how the kind of current structure of the university came about. That's very interesting uh, for historians of science and historians of the university. Uh, you know, no doubt there's lots of interesting work on that. But um, what I'm 
thinking about is more how um, disciplines, uh, uh, what, what is a functional explanation for disciplines? You know, what value do they have? What, what role do they play? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm kind of thinking about when I say why, not kind of historical why, um, but a functional why. Um, you know, what's the best interpretation if we we're going to think of this being having a goal or a purpose? Um, and I'll just note that there is a relationship between academic disciplines and academic departments that can be a little confusing, right? Because economics is both a discipline and a department. Law, I would argue at least, is a department or actually a school here, uh, but it's not really a discipline properly understood. Or at the very least, there's less people in the law school who are not doing the discipline of law, even if there is a discipline of law. So, um, so in any case, there's an overlap between these things, but I'm really, and I think in this in the context of, you know, thinking about interdisciplinary scholarship or interdisciplinary engagement, we're really not thinking just about, hey, people in different departments, and it's just a matter of like walking across the hall to chat with somebody else who happens to just be, you know, have a you know, different kind of departmental address than you do. That's in some sense straightforward, something overly complicated about that. Um, disciplines are more of kind of intellectual structures. And as such, they create special, you know, that boundary between disciplines is more kind of real and meaningful than just a, simply an arbitrary bureaucratic designation. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm focused on. So one of the reasons or one of the defenses that I would offer, a functional defense of disciplines, and this isn't gonna be overly uh, novel, but um, it's worth getting on the table, is that they help us um, structure our knowledge production, right? Um, and so, and, and, you, and you can see this when you, you know, consider what the, um, what the actual discipline, what are, what are some kind of classic disciplines? And one question that we can ask that's relevant here is whether the disciplinary boundaries that we see when we look at the university or we look at kind of academia broadly, whether those we might say carve up the world at the joints. You know, are these just arbitrary, right? Just kind of, you know, created on a whim, historically contingent separations of people and fields of study, or do they seem to map onto something important about the world? Actually, it's it's not just totally, uh, uh, totally a matter of historical contingency, totally arbitrary. Rather, there's actually seems to be some way in which disciplinary boundaries map onto something um, kind of real about the world. So what are some of the ways that, you know, we might, we see, you know, the disciplines showing up uh, in the, in the university? So for example, in the, in the hard sciences, at least, you see uh, disciplines emerging essentially at different scales. Um, you know, one of the ways that you could talk about this in, is in terms of um, emergent phenomena, right? So that you maybe start with physics, which is of course at the smallest Small scales and the biggest scales, cosmology, obviously, is a very large scales, right? Uh, and so you have those kind of extreme scales uh, in in physics, and then you know you kind of, at least from the um, at the micro scale, you move up from the 
absolute smallest scales of you know particles and their interactions, and um, and sub smaller than particle uh, entities, and you move up, and then you get into like the field of chemistry, which is hop- operating at a higher physical scale, larger things, molecules, uh, and you're looking at those interactions. You know, and then there's the kind of a deep question of whether you need, if you had a full understanding of the, at the more quote unquote foundational or smaller scale, would you even need the field of chemistry? Would it could just be completely kind of collapsed and subsumed in, um, in the field of physics? And putting that question aside, we don't really need to get to that because what one of the, what we do know is at least with our current understanding of physics. And our current ability to model uh, what we do understand about physics, it's a heck of a lot easier to understand what's going on with chemistry by studying uh, uh, chemical reactions and the field of chemistry at the level of chemistry rather than trying to model everything from the ground up. Um, and so there are, uh, there's all kinds of value of you know, constructing your models at different scales. And then you know, we can move up again to higher, higher physical scales, you know, thinking in terms of biology or ecological systems. And again, what we do in all of these, at each of these levels, is we add uh, uh, a scale for models, essentially, that we can say, we're going to talk about cells. And we're going to talk about the functioning of cells or the functioning of um, components of cells. And that's this kind of scale that we're going to talk about um, in a in a in a given you know in a given field, and that's really useful rather than trying to keep track of you know every uh, photon and electron in in a molecule in a not just a molecule in a cell, which would be like a huge number, um, and you're going to like run the Schrodinger equation or something to try to understand something about these kind of cellular dynamics or how proteins work or whatever in a particular in a particular cell or particular context. Or you're going to uh, think about viruses and how they interact with the cell. It's like it would be so com- computationally complex to try to run that um, mapping every subatomic particle. And so you don't do that. Uh, instead, you construct entirely different models and entirely different scales um, to understand cells. And then, of course, if you think about an ecosystem, forget about it. Obviously, you're not going to map the, um, you know, the, an ecosystem at the level of, you know, particle physics. And, you know, so not only are you buying like a much simplified version of the world, you know, arguably, you know, these models work because they're picking up on real phenomena that just exist at these different scales. We could call them emergent phenomena if we want. Obviously, the term emergent has, um, there's some different uses of that term, um, you know, hard emergence versus soft emergence, the like. So what I'm um, talking about here is really soft emergence, where hard emergence is things like, you know, where you, it, it's kind of like impossible to understand system level dynamics based on a, um, a lower level kind of subsystem representation and that there are system level phenomena that literally can't be modeled or understood. I'm not necessarily talking about that, maybe for purposes of today, I'm just agnostic about that. Really, it's just that it is much, much, much easier to model the system at higher, um, 
higher scales. This is much less computationally complex. Um, that there are macro scale phenomenon that you can capture and describe and model and predict and understand. Um, don't require the, um, uh, the the finer grain representation at, at some lower um, lower scale. Um, so that seems real. <laughs> That's the point there. Uh, that doesn't seem just like an arbitrary uh, historical contingency or, you know, some academic administrator uh, in the Middle Ages made some decision and, you know, we're all kind of stuck with it these days. This seems to represent real differences in the world. And of course, the, the carving line might be in some sense arbitrary. Maybe that's a little bit hard to know um, between, say, what we treat as physics and what we treat as chemistry and what we treat as chemistry and what we treat as biology. And of course, they these things shade into each other with, you know, um, there's the field of biophysics where physicists or people trained in physics are applying, you know, ideas out of there. Um, domain to biological systems, and there's organic chemistry, and um, you know, is, ideas out of physics like quantum mechanics are like totally integrated into the field of chemistry. So it, it's not like there's non-porous boundaries, or that there's some kind of hard boundary, but there is utility in modeling the world at these different scales. There's intellectual utility. There's utility from the perspective of knowledge and, and complexity, reducing the complexity, computational complexity of your models. And so that's real. Now, the, the again, the actual dividing lines, um, you know, maybe there's some arbitrariness to that. And, and, and so this kind of goes to one possible, you know, value of interdisciplinarity, uh, interdisciplinary engagement is, you know, in as much as those boundaries are at least somewhat arbitrary, uh, it's good for them to be porous so that you can have this productive crossover where you can take tools that are developed in one domain and apply them in another domain, or you can build models at a mesoscale. Maybe you have a microscale and a macroscale and you're interested in the mesoscale. And given, um, you know, given the nature of the world, it may well be that we can you know, we can select lots and lots and lots and lots of different uh, scales to, to build our models. And so uh, from a from an institutional perspective and from an organizational perspective, it might make sense to organize our disciplines in such a way that, um, you know, we have somewhat more fixed lines, but then allow for this engagement. And then we could also, um, you know, the, those boundaries could adapt over time as well as our tools get better, as our understanding of the world gets better. Um, nevertheless, again, the point here is that those disciplinary boundaries, at least, you know, within the hard sciences as I'm describing them, do seem to track uh, something important about our world and how we come to understand our world uh, in a very general way. Uh, and of course, we can think about something similar happening at the um, within the social behavioral sciences, um, you know, modeling individuals, um, thinking about kind of fields like psychology, uh, cognitive science, and then, you know, we can kind of start to think as in terms of aggregates, smaller aggregates, larger aggregates, we can think, you know, fields like social psychology, thinking about how, you know, human psychology is embedded in um, a social environment, uh, fields like sociology or economics that are modeling, you know, big groups, um, you know, in a field like economics, we are, you know, the idea is to abstract away from a lot of the individual variation that happens, um, you know, treat um, people and models as, uh, fairly uh, simplified uh, agents. Again, for modeling purposes, it's a heck of a lot easier to do that uh, rather than try to 
capture an enormous amount of psychological richness uh, in an economic model, which would essentially make the model um, unbelievably difficult to compute if you're going to have you know, a million or a billion agents interacting with each other. Uh, very difficult to do. It's not clear what you would buy from that in terms of um, helping you address the questions um, that economists are interested in. So that's within the kind of the hard and the social sciences. And again, you know, we have emergent phenomena. We have, um, uh, you know, structuring inquiry at different uh, levels of phenomenon uh, that we might be interested in. Then, of course, the other kind of big divide in um, in academic life is between the sciences and humanities. It's actually worth thinking about whether that tracks anything meaningful. So that's. Uh, going to be very different, though, if, if it does, um, because we're not talking about scales, really, um, when we talk about the sciences versus the humanities. And another issue that I think <laughs> arises here is that humanities is itself maybe not a wonderful category, or at least not a wonderful category compared to the sciences, where this, there's a a fair amount that holds sciences together, um, even if there's a lot of differences between physics and economics, like lots and lots of differences. That is true, but um, there's something that holds them together in a way that say, anthropology, uh, history, and philosophy of mind, say, uh, don't have, um, it's not clear what exactly holds them together, right? So um, so that's a kind of a tricky thing about talking about, about the humanities versus um, the sciences generally. But in any case, you know, if we think about the humanities, you know, what in the world or in how we come to know about the world, are we, um, you know, as we, we break off the humanities disciplines from each other, it does seem that there's something tracked, you know, that there's something here, um, although probably much more related to, um, to us and how we come to understand the world than something you know, inherent in the physical world, the, the same way that like scale and phenomena existing at different scales really seems to have um, some kind of deep underlying reality to it. Whereas say the difference between history and philosophy and why we break those up into two different um, disciplines is really much more about how we think about the world or how we come to understand the world. Anyway, that's at least seems that way to me. Um, and so, and even if, you know, something like philosophy or a field like philosophy is really a bunch of different fields. There's philosophy of mind, there's philosophy of language, um, you know, those kinds of disciplines, those kinds of, you know, folks that engage in that work doing very different stuff than people who are engaged in political morality or in kind of ethics uh, in its different ways. And people engaged in meta-ethics are very different from people, you know, which are questions, of course, about like things like, you know, can you do moral statements have truth? That kind of work is very different from applied ethics where you're asking uh, questions about, say, um, you know, reproductive technology and, you know, the, the ethics and morality of that. So, um, so in any case, there's a lot of stuff that kind of gets clumped together in the humanities in ways that maybe are not as obviously sensible as um, we might think some of the organiz organizing that happens in the, in the sciences might be. Um, you know, you have like a continental philosophy. People are interested in like Hegel and, you know, it's very different from the analytic philosophy and um, that you see in different, you know, different philosophers that are interested in that stuff. So, um, 
So in any case, it's interesting. There are ways in which the humanities does sometimes feel um, like a, a category that just lots of stuff gets crammed into it. Um, so, you know, maybe that tells us a little something about where the state of the world is with respect to the sciences versus the humanities in the in the um in the in the uh, in university life, you know, there's also fields like my own. Um, we know which kind of functionally organized um, along be professional lines like engineering or law or business. Where actually, really, those are very interdisciplinary in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's, there's, there could be different disciplines brought to bear in those fields, but they're organized for educational reasons, perhaps. Um, although also, you know, to to some extent, organized along intellectual lines um, for knowledge production as well. Um, now, just another uh, kind of point that's worth considering here is a big, uh, at least cultural distinction within different fields are is quantitative versus qualitative um, disciplines. And so that's kind of one way of looking in, in a rough way at science versus humanities as well as thinking, okay, well, the scientific disciplines are the quantitative disciplines and the, um, the humanistic disciplines are the qualitative disciplines. I, I'm not sure I'm particularly in love with that uh, way of understanding the science humanities distinction, um, in part because I'm actually not sure where math goes. Uh, mathematics, I think th there's a case to be made that mathematics is probably understood as a humanistic discipline um, rather than a scientific discipline, just because the, the the mode of inquiry in mathematics is, you know, this kind of pure logic and is not really empirical. Uh, it's not about um, making theories and testing them against, you know, the data from the world in the way that science is. So, the, you know, what holds scientific um inquiry together, at least in my mind, is exactly that, is just the empirical nature of the project. And it's not clear that mathematics is operating in the same way. Um, and so, you know, it, there's, there are um, similarities between a field like mathematics and a field like um, logic, which you would have in a philosophy department, or even, I think, fields like metaethics or theory of mind or philosophy of mind, again, which you would have more in a philosophy department. Now, of course, mathematics is very different from um, history or uh, anthropology, uh, but, you know, um, that's the thing about the humanities is it is pretty, um, pretty diverse. So, um, so, so these are, uh, so, so that, all of that is just to say that the disciplines that we have, at least in some general sense, do seem to map onto either real features of the world or, you know, big ways that we uh, are engaged in the process of, of producing knowledge and thinking about the world. You know, the difference between, say, you know, historians and philosophers, they're doing very different things. Now, again, there can be borderlands between the two where um, a historian might be interested in the history of philosophy or a philosopher might be interested in historical figures like Locke, of course, or Aristotle. And that certainly happens and is true. And so there's a lot of philosophers who are very interested in classical philosophy. Um, but the way that a philosopher approaches Aristotle is very different from the way that a historian is going to approach uh, a figure like Aristotle to the extent they care about a figure like Aristotle. But we're more, let's take a more recent um, group like the American pragmatists, uh, John Dewey or William James. A historian is interested in the you know, uh, turn of the century or early 20th century philosophy 
philosophers are really going to be looking at those philosophers as embedded in their cultural context and how they're talking to each other. And maybe you want to read their letters. And, you know, that's a, just a different methodology than a philosopher who's going to really, you know, I mean, maybe look at the letters. But again, they're not trying to understand how these people are relating to each other on a personal level or, you know, that kind of thing. For the most part, what they're interested in is they're distilled ideas, you might say. They're trying to distill out their ideas and then evaluate them according to, you know, kind of principles of reasoning and logic and that kind of thing. Just a very different exercise. Um, so when I think about disciplines, now all that, all that haven't been said, when I think about disciplines as ways of structuring inquiry, and this is, again, all in the service of a defense of disciplines, as, at least as a starting place, is that they, you know, there are some things that matter that help us organize our our inquiries, and th some of these things that matter are, th are like the object of study. You know, what are we studying? We're interested in the law. We're interested in um, cells. <laughs> you know, we're interested in you know market interactions and commerce. Right, whatever whatever it is, we have some things that we're studying. Um, oh, we're interested in we're interested in ethics. We're interested in. Uh, classical Greece and what happened in classical Greece, right? We're, we're interested in, you know, the Ryman um, conjecture. These are things that organize that we're, that we're going to spend our time thinking about, okay? So those are objects of study. And then there are questions that we're going to ask about the object of study, right? So uh, I'll just take law as an example because I'm familiar with the area. So we can ask things like, is the... Um, uh, you know, uh, this, are the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court on free speech justified on the basis of, you know, prior decision making, right? That would prior judicial opinions. That would be a very kind of legal doctrinal approach. And to the extent that there is a method um, to law and legal analysis, um, you can answer that question internal to law, um, you know, just the norms of how one does legal analysis. Or we can ask a question like, you know, how... Uh, has the change in presidents or the change in politics affected the court's jurisprudence? Be more of a social science or historical kind of question. Or we could ask, you know, is the courts, you know, or the way that we've structured um, speech protections in the United States kind of consistent with a good society uh, or with democratic norms or with norms of personal liberty or whatever, right? That would be kind of your philosophical normative um, way of asking these questions. So we can have an object of study, we can have different questions that we might ask, and then we have methods for addressing those questions. Right? How do people, and how do we actually, once we've asked a question, is the free speech jurisprudence of the court consistent with a, you know, a, a liberal democracy, right? Or with, or with, you know, you can see human flourishing generally, it's very general, but is it consistent with human well-being, right? Um, does it maximize? aggregate welfare would be another way to ask that question within a consequentialist moral framework. And so then, you know, again, we can kind of have ways of answering those questions. Or if we're going to ask a social science question, how has the, you know, the courts free speech, you know, um, affected, say, um, you know, religiosity? Let's just say, let's just imagine that we could study something. It's very hard to study that stuff, but you can ask that question. <laughs> and, you know, you would, as a social scientist, you would at least in principle have a sense of how you might try to get at the answer to that question, right? Maybe there's somehow you could 
you know, let's let's just say hypothetically, you had instead of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, that's really hard to study. You could study state level jurisprudence, and some states adopt different free speech norms than others, or maybe it happens in different circuits at different times, and then you could. You know, and it's kind of random, um, maybe, you know, because judges are assigned randomly to panels. And so you could you could try to look at kind of differences in how the judges are assigned to cases. Then, you know, that's a little bit of a randomized process. And then you use that randomization um, and just the same way you do in a random uh, randomized control trial for like a, a drug or a vaccine or something like that. When you have a randomized treatment here, you know, some specific um, decision on, on uh, First Amendment rights. And then you say, okay, there's a treated group and a non-treated group, and then try to look at differences in some outcome that you're interested in, like religiosity. Now, that isn't like a study that anybody would actually do. <laughs> It'd be too complicated and way unlikely to find effects. But, um, you know, but in principle, you can ask the question and you would have a method to get an answer. You have different types of methods, probably more than one, actually. Um, and so, so these are things that help us structure our inquiry, right? Um, we have an object of study, we have questions that we wanna ask, and uh, we have methods for addressing those questions. And w when I think of you know, the value of disciplines, what you're really accomplishing is you're creating collections of people that share things like objects of studies, questions, and methods, and that promotes the progressive production of knowledge over time. Uh, people start to frame questions together. Um, they refine those questions so they make more sense. Um, we can agree on how we might approach those questions. We can build the kinds of data that we need or the infrastructure that we might need if we're historians, then the infrastructure includes things like archives, right? If we're economists, the infrastructure includes things like data sets that we use. Um, and, the, and there's also intellectual infrastructure around things like, in, again, in economics, inferential models or um, parameter estimators. Whereas in his history, the uh, intellectual um, pieces are kind of like how you, you know, interpretive methods, um, you know, the, the appropriate time scales, what, what you can and can't. Uh, infer from different kinds of historical sources. Um, and so we build the physical infrastructure, we build the intellectual infrastructure that allows us to actually answer the questions that we've generated in the field, refine, generate more questions, and progressively produce knowledge over time. So this is all a big, long <laughs> defense of disciplines in this, in as, as a setup, essentially, to talk about the value and what I find attractive of interdisciplinary study and why I um, engage in it and, and why this podcast is in a way devoted to the practice of engaging in, in interdisciplinary conversations. So let's let's move on to that. What is the what is the value? And you know, I kind of think there's there's a practical level value and then there's a higher meta value. So at the practical perspective, you know, we could think of overlaps and lacunas, right? So overlaps where fields are looking at the same thing, uh, maybe through slightly different lenses, and then, then there's gonna be areas that are missed by fields. Um, and interdisciplinary engagement can help with both of those. So I mentioned earlier, you know, just in the context of chemistry and physics and biology, really classic, you know, ways of carving up the world, um, you know, there's, a, there's really the world is kind of a continuum. There's 
different, um, you know, different scales and different love um, where we can observe phenomenon. And so, um, you know, and any given boundary might be arbitrary. And so there might be kind of uh, a missing missing zone in between fields where it is actually useful to um, to model things at that scale. And so um, so that just, inter you know, if, if there is a gap like that, then it's only going to be through interdisciplinary engagement that you're going to identify that gap and then maybe engage in productive um, knowledge production in that um, in that gap. And so, you know, just to give some example, and then there can also be uh, overlaps, right, where you have an in, you're interested in something, but your field only kind of takes a part of the picture and you really need to build a group of people that have like a different lens or a different knowledge base or expertise in order to have a more complete um, picture of the phenomena that you're interested in. So an example might be, you know, an economist who's modeling fisheries, right? Um, maybe the economist, um, you know, is interested in how people respond to changes in property rights regimes. And, you know, there's some different fisheries and there's been changes in property rights regimes in those fisheries over time. And so that creates a nice context for the economist to study, um, you know, to study these changes. But at the same time, it might be helpful for the economist to know something um, or to at least have a team of people who know something about like fish, right? If you're studying fisheries or ecology, or maybe these property rights and their changes aren't, you know, super straightforward. And so you need people with an expertise in property rights or the relevant regulations in order to understand the consequences of, you know, some legal changes that happened over time. And so in order to get at your, you know, question that might be of interest within the domain of economics, you have to... Um, it might be helpful, at least, for the economist to work with folks from these relevant fields. Now, in this hypo, in this setup, it's not clear that the people from the other disciplines get much out of it, right? If we're interested in, you know, how changes in property rights affect, you know, something like um, bargaining or collaborative behavior or something like that, if you privatize rights, does that mean that, you know, shared you know, sh uh, shared norms um, are degraded or something like that. Uh, people are less likely to just offer a helping hand if they have a more well-defined property rights. Who knows? Whatever the theory is that could exist within economics, but that's not something that's interesting to ecologists or, you know, someone who's an expert in, in, in you know, fish biology, right? Even though you might need those expertises uh, for the project, it's not like the paper is going to get published in an ecology paper. It's going to in an ecology journal. It's going to get published in an economics journal because you're asking a primarily economics question. So this is one um, value of interdisciplinary research is to combine these different expertises, but it's a challenge because um, the questions that you're asking might not actually be of interest to people in all the different fields. It might just be that you need to draw expertise from some fields in order to ask, to address questions rather, um, in a given field. Um, so that's a challenge. Um, it's both a value of interdisciplinary, so it's a really obvious one, right? really obvious case for why um, an interdisciplinary approach might be useful, but it's also one where you can see putting those teams together can actually be quite a challenge because like, what's the reward for the ecologist or the, or the biologist or for the, uh, the legal expert? I mean, they can get paid, um, I guess, but, um, but they're not being rewarded in the kind of currency of their fields, which is, you know, they're not producing knowledge that's seen as valuable in their, in their domains. Um, so that's tricky. It's just, a, it's a tricky thing to develop collaborations like that. Um, when the rewards are kind of, um, concentrated in, in amongst some of the 
some of the players, but not everybody. Um, you know, that having been said, with the same project, you could, in principle, if it was if it was the right project, um, it could be of interest to people in all of the fields. Like, you know, maybe the ecologist is also interested in um, the effects of fishery practices on fi- the, the, some of these ecosystems, either the fish themselves or their prey or whatever. And so the change in property rights you know, then leads to a downstream change in the behavior of uh, the fishing communities, which then further has an effect on the ecology of the uh, of the relevant in the relevant areas. And so, the ecologist could, in principle, get something out of the research that she could then publish in an ecology journal. But that requires a very, very special kind of it's like lightning in a bottle kind of project, where the team that you pull together, there are rewards that you know operate for each of the components everybody that's in there like you know our legal expert could then write a paper that's about those legal changes or whatever um so that's very difficult and and this is actually a you know i think a pretty substantial uh challenge to interdisciplinary collaboration is identifying projects that have these kind of mutual rewards it's also not clear that we need to i mean it's it's maybe a problem that we need to have these mutual awards like maybe the incentive structure could just operate a little bit differently so that you know if you're an ecologist and you work on a paper that's published in a major economics journal or you're an economist that works on a paper that's published in a major you know life sciences journal that is seen as kind of a good thing in your field um and it's not clear that we're there yet um i think that you know, in part because it's just hard to evaluate. Like, how do you know? <laughs> and what was the economist's contribution? Was it just, I guess, there's a reason why it's not evaluated as much because, you know, here with our with our little toy example, the economist might be, there might be something really interesting in this context to learn about, you know, how people respond to changes in property rights. And there might not be anything interesting to learn from an ecology perspective. It might just be that, you know, having an ecologist on the team is useful and maybe even vital for the production of this economics knowledge. But the level of ecologist that you have isn't doesn't have to be. It could be a you know someone with an undergraduate in, in ecology or a basic understanding of ecology. It doesn't have to be like a brilliant research scholar, right? They're, because in a sense, they're not doing ecology research. Um, but you know, again, that's tricky because a lot of times you're trying to work with graduate students, and if an ecology graduate student is going to be on this project, that graduate student is going to want to see an ecology paper. Um, and if that ecology graduate student is then on the job market looking for a job and is being evaluated, and their name is on an economics paper, you know, that's not going to necessarily count for very much, and maybe it shouldn't count for very much because it's not commute doesn't communicate their ability to actually carry out ecology research. So. This is just to say it's actually very tricky. I mean, we can kind of bemoan the incentive structure that exists and say, ah, it's bad for interdisciplinary collaboration, but there are reasons why uh, some of these things are the way they are. Okay, so then, okay, just to even kind of make this slightly more complicated, um, we could say, you know, what about a historian? Can we bring in a historian into our research team? And sometimes, you know, there are actually real incentives to that kind of thing, like the NSF, if you're writing a grant or whoever you're writing a grant to, if you, you know, put a historian in the team and then you can say, oh, this is super interdisciplinary, look at how great this is. Um, there's at least some uh, uh, areas of the NSF where that kind of thing would be really favorably, um, might anyway, lead to a more favorable disposition towards your grant. But then the question is like, what's what's your historian doing? Now, 
it could be that your historian is offering value to the project and there could be something really, really interesting in a broader um, engagement with the, the, the history. Like, you know, I mean, you of course have to ask who this historian is and what their his or her expertise is, but maybe, you know, the person knows about, you know, the fishing communities that you're studying, you know, and, um, you know, knows about... Um, how they came to have the property rights arrangements that they do um, knows about stories of displacement um, for how the communities that are there displaced others, or how the people that were there fled from you know other you know due to other kind of historical contingencies. Um, just the whole contingent nature of the system that it's that it's endogenous in some way to lots and lots of other um, features of the world, and that can be very interesting. But it's also very very different. Um, it's not clear how it interacts with the, you know, the purposes of our imagined project, right? Which at least at, at its initiation was about coming to a more abstract understanding of the interaction of, say, property rights and um, and some kind of behavior, say, collaborative behavior. If you know, if that's what is the motivating force behind the project, then you know, it could very well be that all this historical information is. Besides the point of the, this particular project, which doesn't mean it's not interesting, doesn't mean it's not worth knowing, doesn't mean it's not worth the you know uh, historical research on those questions, but it's not clear what you get out of the aggregation of these projects. There's also other difficulties like the timescales involved. Um, you know, a historian who's interested in you know questions about you know some set of fishing communities, for example, is going to be publishing in entirely different ways. Um, you know, maybe, you know, it'd be part of a broader book project on, you know, coastal, coastal, you know, Americans living in the, you know, whatever the, uh, the, you know, the early 20th century. Right. And, and so given the, the, the publication timelines and the length of the projects and, you know, all of that creates complications for people interacting with, with, with each other and trying to, uh, you know, trying to build a collaborative research team. So, um, so, in any case, this is just to say that uh, the little hypo is a il illustration of both the potential value of interdisciplinary collaborations, why it's almost like necessary in some cases to draw expertise from different areas uh, to get at a research question, but also, um, you know, also the difficulty of of doing it and some of some of the challenges. Um, there are lots of other you know, areas that you could think of, I mean, tons, just, a, a, you know, an extraordinarily large number of areas where interdisciplinary collaborations are being done or could be done. Um, you know, just to give another example, where just so I don't create the impression that uh, humanities and, and sciences can't work together, human, humanists and scientists in a productive way, you know, um, a bunch of research was done on deliberation by folks in the behavioral sciences that was motivated in part by um, work that was being done in political morality, political theory on um, in the field of deliberative democracy. So there was a um, whole flourishing of literature on, um, you know, uh, normative theories of democracy and you know, like the 90s in particular dealing with um, or, you know, kind of arguing in favor of uh, a deliberative model of democracy, sometimes civic Republican um, model of, de of, of democracy, basically the idea is that 
prior to that, we had a very thin conception of democracy that was really about voting and aggregating preferences. And actually, a thicker conception of democracy would involve um, how we come to our preferences and how we come to hold the views that we hold about how best to live together in society. And so um, we should fold in a notion of you know, that, that preference formation, deliberation, um, public discourse process into our theory of democracy. And out of that, in part out of that, are motivated certainly by that line of, of work and writing in, in political morality, political philosophy, um, social scientists became more interested in questions about how groups deliberate with each other and, you know, research teams, collaborations between uh, philosophers and political theorists and uh, social scientists, um, political scientists, social psychologists, and the like, there's a whole research field emerge on this question of deliberation and, um, and group deliberation, group dynamics, the outputs of which were actually really um, deflating for deliberative democracy as a theory, because it basically turns out when people deliberate, um, they tend to like polarize or um, their views become more extreme. If they're with members of the same group, they become more extreme. Uh, deliberation and participation seem to be at loggerheads with each other, whereas the more people are exposed to ideas that are different from theirs, the less likely they are to want to engage in politics. And so it's like the people who get engaged are the ones who are like in their bubbles and never have to um, engage with people who have different views with them. And then they get really like, you know, polarized and in, and motivated to engage in politics. So there's this like trade-off between deliberation um, of the kind that we would want, right, which would involve engagement with people who have different political views than you do, and participation, right? So, so in any case, it's a tricky story. And again, it was a little deflationary for uh, some of the uh, most enthusiastic proponents of deliberative democracy as a normative model, but but nevertheless, very useful and a really nice example of humanity's collaboration that was interesting for both. It was interesting for the humanists because, you know, this political morality in part had an empirical component to it about, um, you know, what would happen in the world when people deliberate. That was definitely part of what motivated um, the, the whole movement towards deliberative democracy was, was some theories, at least or some hypotheses about what would happen when people deliberate and how they would, you know, I mean, broadly, the, the hope would be that they would come to a better understanding of each other's views. It would actually be reducing of tensions and that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, you have the empirical question of whether that's actually true and, and uh, fields, social behavioral scientists, folks in those domains can help answer some of those questions. And so it's super productive from, for both the philosophical discourse um, and just within the, the, the behavioral social sciences, we are, the, the question about group dynamics and deliberation was really motivated out of the, the humanities and the, the ethical and moral um, arguments being made there. Uh, so provided them with a set of questions and there was an empirical component to it and then they could, they could use their tools on it. So that was a, a really interesting example of, um, of interdisciplinary collaboration. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up because, um, you know, it's been, uh, if you're still with me uh, at this point, I appreciate you, um, your sustained concentration and willingness to stick me with this, this conversation. I'm just going to end with some, um, you know, some thoughts both on what helps um, make interdisciplinary collaboration work and some final comments on what I think some motivations for it are, besides the kind of practical ones that I've been talking about a little bit. 
So in terms of things that, that work, obviously, maybe I'm not going to dwell too much on this. You know, it's obviously things like respect for each other's disciplines and taking the time to actually understand what motivates people. I think that the, the framework of understanding, at least at a high level of, of generality in another field, what is the object study that they're interested in, what are some of the questions that motivate them, how do they go about answering those questions, and really having a sense of that for the different disciplines that you're interacting with can be very helpful and can help frame interdisciplinary projects so that they're successful, knowing the difference between normative and empirical questions, knowing that the, either the empirical predicates to your normative uh, inquiries, if you're in a normative discipline, or the normative predicates to your empirical uh, inquiries, if you're in an empirical discipline, is something, again, that can be really helpful and can help open up areas for, uh, for cross-disciplinary collaboration. The final thing I'll just kind of point I wanted to make is that one of the uh, kind of motivations for me personally, um, and I think for others who are engaged in interdisciplinary engagement of various kinds, is just, it helps to facilitate the understanding and appreciation of the incredible accomplishment of people engaged in intellectual life, um, in scientific inquiry, in humanistic inquiry, in philosophy, in history, and in the, the hard sciences and the social sciences. That this is just an incredible collective project that has had just huge successes, an enormous amount of collective effort has gone into it. And um, it's something that, you know, is really, it's a marvel and it's, and it's wondrous and having, you know, just being interested in that and um, wanting to appreciate it is something that I think drives a lot of interdisciplinary engagement. One of the ways I think about this is almost like an aesthetic of knowledge, the same way that, you know, we might appreciate art or we might appreciate nature or we might appreciate human accomplishments in other domains like, I don't know, sports or technology or other domains of culture, music. We can also appreciate the accomplishments of science and mathematics and philosophy and all of the, the different intellectual disciplines that you know, are engaged in knowledge production. And to, to have that aesthetic, to be able to engage in that appreciation, we need to understand what the questions are, why they're hard to answer, why they're interesting, and, and why answering them or getting at them is such an incredible accomplishment. And you know, when you have that underlying knowledge, that provides you with the capacity to engage in this aesthetic appreciation of just really marveling at that tremendous, you know, a collective accomplishment. And this just really just, this adds to our experience of the world. You know, the reality is life is difficult. I'm not sure it's, it's more difficult now than it was in the past, but, um, you know, there's the first noble truth of Buddhism is life is suffering, right? And that idea has been with us for thousands of years, and, and there's still some truth to that, or, you know, at least arguably today. And, you know, but that doesn't mean that we can't see, you know, what is beautiful around us. And that's, that's the nature of aesthetic appreciation. And, and there's some way in which we can all be part of the human project of curiosity and learning. And we just have that capacity when we come into the world. And part of the urge to interdisciplinary engagement, I think, stems from this natural and innate way of being in the world that we can 
cultivate um, in ourselves, even if the motivation isn't necessarily to produce knowledge or engage in some project ourselves, but is you know, simply and importantly uh, so that we can appreciate the contributions of others. And again, this tremendous collective intellectual project. So at a very high level of abstraction, that's the goal of free range is to is prime me with an opportunity to cultivate that understanding. Um, is to provide others with an opportunity as well. It's been a fun first season. I look forward to other seasons in the future.